You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 42 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Connor Johnnan and David Ian Howe. In this episode, we are interviewing Ash Boydston-Schmidt, a master's student in museum studies at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Ash. How are you doing this evening? I'm pretty good. How are you guys? Doing all right. Can't complain. <laughs> Meh. <laughs> So what's your, like, what are you currently doing? Like, what's your, what's your thing? Well, right now I am a master's student at the University of New Mexico, and I am a graduate assistant at the Maxwell Museum and the archaeology collection. Uh, but with COVID right now, everything's a little weird. So those are my like official things I'm doing, but there's a lot of like stuff going on that's just like in my living room. Oh, that museum is top notch. I think, did we visit that when we were in New Mexico? We did, and it has that we giant did. open excavation in it, which is just baller. Oh, yes. it's. I have a deep love for it. I got to spend a lot of time in the collections and within the exhibits while it's been closed. So we're actually going to be looking at changing a lot of those and updating them because they haven't been updated since the 80s. So we're going to be hopefully working on that soon. That's, that's super cool. We kind of know you through Carlton. How did you two guys end up meeting? So I actually met him through Instagram. Uh, I was listening to some podcasts on the APN and I listened to Heritage Voices and Carlton was on an episode, which led me to Life in Ruins, which led me to interacting with him on Instagram because someone once told me like, if you find someone in a position that you want to interact with them, whether that's someone wrote a book and you need to email them and talk to them about the book, or it's a professor, or it's someone on the internet, just interact with them and see what happens. And then we kind of became friendly. And then he actually ended up staying with me in Albuquerque. And I would consider us friends now. But yeah, kind of Instagram was kind of how that happened. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. I think it started over something I was doing with Devin. So I remember we had interacted on Instagram, um, but I was doing something with Devin and you reached out. You mentioned that you had a lot of Osage orange wood that you were getting rid of from like a house in Oklahoma, which is a really good source of uh, material for ancient weapons technology. So when I drove to Oklahoma over the summer, I swung back through Albuquerque, which is a little out of the way to meet you, your uh, partner, Austin. And yeah, we got to hang out together in Albuquerque and I got some sweet Osage orange that me and Devin are still working on. Yeah, well, there'll be more, so be ready. I'm looking forward to it. I'm having a hard time. It's a it's a steep learning curve to make making bows. That is for sure. Oh yeah, that wood is something else to work with. It's something else to cut down too. It's kind of a struggle. Oh, I, I absolutely bet. So one thing that I found fascinating during our time. Uh, oh, by the way, Lana says hi. Oh, hi, Lana. Um, <laughs> I told her we were. <laughs> I told her we were interviewing yes. that she wanted to say, uh, make sure she said hi to you and Austin. Oh, yes, absolutely. Tell her we said hello. Absolutely. So one thing that we discussed, we were talking about um, indigenous heritage. And you have a, a rather interesting story behind your family's indigenous um, heritage. Would you mind telling your audience uh, a, a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an Upsalaga descendant from the Crow tribe. I'm not an enrolled member. I'm a descendant. But we ended up in Oklahoma and I grew up uh, in and around the Chickasaw Nation and a lot of Choctaw people because, as you know, Oklahoma is a really interesting place with how all the tribes interact and kind of settle everywhere. So growing up, I had a lot of Chickasaw and Choctaw friends and some of them I even consider family. So I consider myself more culturally Chickasaw, Choctaw slash more pan-Indian because uh, I wasn't raised on Crow and I wasn't raised up in that area and I only know a little bit. But my family ended up in Oklahoma because my grandmother, who is a little bit far back, but my grandmother was Crow and ended up being married to a U.S. cavalry soldier who was then taken from Montana and he was stationed at Fort Sill in Oklahoma and we have been here ever since. So in the big wide world of identity politics with indigenous peoples, it gets a little messy sometimes. And my story is a little messy, but we ended up in Oklahoma and I loved growing up there. And I loved growing up where I did and around the people I did. So shout out to everyone back home. But That's super cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think we as anthropologists uh, and, and 
people in general. I want to put people in categories and say, okay, you're from this nation or you're from this location or you're from this kind of heritage. But it's like you said, it's extremely complicated in a lot of situations. It's not as cut and dry as someone is of this heritage or that. So it's, it's cool to see that things kind of worked out for you where you, you know, are part of one nation, but also culture, your culture is kind of different from that, you know? Yeah. It's definitely something that I've been working on a little bit. I've been actually learning a little bit of Crow because I feel like that's kind of necessary, but I know a little bit of Choctaw as well, but my partner also kind of has the same kind of story of one of his ancestors came here on the orphan train and had no last name. So it's really hard to track that kind of stuff, but Almost everyone you meet in Oklahoma is going to have some kind of interesting story when it comes to their indigenous heritage. Speaking of, would you be able to tell the audience like the difference between descendants and, you know, tribal member? Oh, absolutely. So a tribal member is someone who is politically a part of the tribe because indigenous identity can a lot of times be broken down three ways, racial, political, and cultural. So a lot of people can identify racially and culturally, but maybe not with a tribal ID. Some people identify with the tribal ID, but don't identify culturally. Again, it gets messy. But as a descendant, I am not an enrolled member for a lot of different reasons. The way my tribe decides who gets to enroll, who doesn't, has a lot to do with family, heritage, lineage, how you can go about that and prove it. Um, There's a little bit of blood quantum involved as well. And it's a rather high portion of blood quantum. So depending on who your family is and things like that is going to depend on how you enroll. But personally, I'm not sure if I want to enroll uh, for a couple different reasons. I personally don't believe in the blood quantum system. I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's a very colonial and genocidal construct that is being used to wipe out indigenous peoples. I also don't want to take resources away from the tribe who is living there on Crow and need those resources. I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to where we're okay and we can take care of ourselves. Whereas I want to make sure that a lot of those resources are still available for people who really need them because I don't necessarily need the resources. Um, So there's a lot of different reasons why I'm personally not enrolled, but that's what enrollment is, is you are enrolled in your tribe and you have a specific identity within that tribe. And it typically comes in a little card. Sometimes it's on paper. It depends on how the tribe wants to do it. And then depending on if you were enrolled, depends on if you have certain rights within the tribe. So I do not have voting rights within the Crow tribe. Most descendants are just culturally and ethnically and racially descendant from the tribe. We are not actually enrolled. But again, it does vary tribe to tribe. So it really depends on how people are identifying as descendants and stuff. And it's really something that if someone tells me they're a descendant from a tribe, I'm like, oh, okay, great. And then I don't really go on and question them because it's complicated. Sure. Yeah. And I imagine, especially given the history and politics of it all, it's it's definitely complicated. And, yeah. Well, especially yeah. in situations of like my specific situation, I don't feel it's appropriate to identify as a tribal member because A, I'm not enrolled, but B, I didn't grow up there. So I think descendant kind of fits perfectly what I am. Yeah. And then so the, for you and your family, the culturally Choctaw and um, culturally Chickasaw, was that just a product of the location where your family grew up? Yeah. um, My dad's family, which is where I get my indigenous heritage from, grew up in Southern Oklahoma in the Chickasaw Nation before Oklahoma was even a state. So they were down there like a while Um, before the boomers and the Sooners came in too. They were down there for a while and grew up there entire lives. I grew up down there, grew up around a bunch of different people within the tribe and then people who were like again, tribal members, but not culturally affiliated. So there was a huge, huge presence of indigenous people down there. And then growing up in high school, we used to have these things called like, I think it was JOA days where you'd have tribal members come in and we'd have a powwow in the gym and we'd have fancy dancing and fancy shawl and jingle and hoop. And we'd have all this amazing people come and perform. And I was always just always kind of in the stands like, oh, this is amazing. And it's not my tribe, but like, I'm having a great time. And it was, it was a little weird because almost everyone in my high school, if they were indigenous, they're like, Oh, I'm Chickasaw. Oh, I'm Choctaw. Oh. And then you have the occasional person who was Kiowa or Caddo or someone else down in Southern Oklahoma. But I was always like, Hey, I'm Crow. So that was interesting. But I was never felt like 
I wasn't accepted by the people around me because we were all indigenous together, if that makes sense. Like we all kind of banded together and had our own experience, which is kind of why I feel like Pan-Indian is another good way to talk about it because we kind of had a huge cultural sharing, all these different ideas and thoughts and stories. And it, it was just really cool. But yeah, it's mainly related to the area I grew up in. Cool. Yeah, I can definitely uh, vibe with you. It feels like we were kind of uh, switched because like growing up on Wind River and Crow Agency, and being around crows, Arapahoe, Shoshones, and Cheyennes, and be like, yeah, I'm Pawnee. And like, why are you out of Oklahoma? Who lets you out of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I definitely, I definitely get, those, get those vibes. But like, so a very important question in terms of like coming from like Southern, like Eastern Oklahoma. Do, do you know the Tiger King? I do, actually. I grew up about 15 minutes away. <laughs> well, no way. Yeah, actually, it's been something that when Tiger King first came out, I kind of was like, oh, no. And I watched it because I actually did know a good amount of people who were in it. And then I got texts from friends who were like, oh, my mom's in the background of this shot. And I was like, oh, yeah, there she is. So it's been really interesting. I feel like within the past year, anytime I introduce myself in any setting, people are like, do you you know the Tiger King? And I'm like, yeah, I actually do. I knew a girl in high school who did an internship at the park. Yeah, he was an interesting guy for sure. There's a lot of stuff I don't think just general townspeople knew growing up. Like we knew he was a little out there and a little interesting and a little crazy, but we didn't know the full extent of what was going on. But I do remember when he ran for governor, he came to our Christmas parade. It was very interesting. I was in high school and I was in marching band and we were marching down the street and he was like throwing candy at people and he was like, vote for me. And his little like Tiger King for governor stuff, like that is a hot commodity down there. People love it. That's so wild. I like, didn't, wouldn't have thought about that. He's like a mythical figure to me at this point, but. Yeah, he's, he's something. I mean, infamous, I guess. Yeah, but. Wow. I thought that was just going to be a one-off joke. I didn't know you actually knew No, him. yeah. I, I mean, I don't know him personally, but like, yeah, I'd sure. see him in Walmart occasionally or something like that. Buying expired meats. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that's <laughs> what he was doing. That was, I had no comprehension of that's what was going on, but yeah, we'd see him at Walmart occasionally or just around town. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on, <laughs> moving on from that, <laughs> like, so the Chickasaw and Choctaw, I'm from Tennessee-ish, that they're from like originally from like Northern Alabama, Mississippi area, right? Or or Mm -hmm. is like the modern tribes now live in Oklahoma? Yes. I think that that is the ancestral area of the Choctaws. I know the Chickasaws are almost all in Oklahoma, um, but the Choctaws do have another tribe outside of Oklahoma. I can't remember exactly which state, so so sorry. But uh, yeah, to my knowledge, that is where they came from. And Um, Also, the Cherokee and the Seminole and Muskogee Creek and everyone who got removed with that big removal. Um, But some of them do still remain in that area. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because I just know a lot of I went to UT Knoxville. Mm. So I just knew a lot of people in like the anthro area that were I mean, mostly Cherokee, obviously, but then like Chickasaw, Choctaw, like a lot of people had that descendant. Yeah, uh, I I would say it's probably not uncommon. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned the, like, I forget the word, the blood, blood quantum. genetics, blood mm-hmm. quantum. Right. So in, I believe at UT, like you get a, a like a tuition stipend if you are a Cherokee student, mm-hmm. but then like, obviously so many people claim to be Cherokee mm-hmm. that it becomes an issue. And I don't know anything about that other than I had just heard that becomes an issue. So I don't, was always curious about how that works. So it, it's interesting you bring that up because I can see that getting very sticky. Yeah, we have the running joke of my great great grandmother was a Cherokee princess. Oh, okay. I've heard several jokes about that. <laughs> I wasn't gonna. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a running joke. I think some of it is because, and we've talked a little bit about this, like in some of the circles I was in when I was doing my undergrad. But we would talk a little bit about it, why we think that is, and maybe it's because I don't think Cherokee use blood quantum. I think it's just lineage. Oh, okay. And so maybe I think that might be why, but I think Cherokees also have the highest enrollment number. So I think that might also be another reason. It's also just a really well-known tribe. So. Yeah. That's, that sounds about right. Yeah. There's also a big thing during segregation that on the whiteness scale, um, being Indian was above being black. Mm -hmm. And so many people would try to pass off a 
they're dark skin or, or, or a family member by claiming, oh, no, no, they're not black, they're, they're Cherokee. So a lot of that kind of actually stems from some of the of racial politics in the United States. To add to that, yeah, that's why we also see situations of people saying they're black Dutch or they're black German or they're black Swede. Well, a lot of the times that means that your family was indigenous because they were trying to hide it because of segregation and racism and things like that. Excellent. I think this is a good stopping point. And uh, we'll be right back with episode 42 of a Life from Us podcast and with Ash Boydston Schmidt here in, uh, in a hot second. So enjoy these fabulous commercials by our producers. Welcome back to episode 42. We are interviewing Ash Boydston Schmidt. We had a, a really interesting conversation about kind of uh, indigenous heritage and, and things in the first section. Um, and we're going to change a little bit, but still kind of get out of this in, this in this next section. So it looks like from your CV that you sent us, you, you double majored in anthropology and Native American studies. Can you, can you explain to us why you chose to pursue both degrees? Absolutely. When I went in as a freshman, I had no idea what I wanted to do, like most freshmen. Um, but I kind of had an idea that I wanted to do something with people. And I took an Anthropology 101 class, as you do, and absolutely loved it. So I declared my major like as soon as I could, and I was an Anthropology major. Well, we went th- I went through my basic classes in like linguistics and sociocultural and all that. Like You go through the very, very basics. And I went through an archaeology class. And we covered NAGPRA and it was a really emotional time. Like I remember breaking down in class and my professor not knowing what to do with me. And I just had this feeling of like, I have to do something with this. I don't know what, but I have to do something with NAGPRA. And for any of the listeners that are not archaeology and anthropology minded, that stands for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And so I knew I wanted to do something with that, but I knew I didn't want to just approach it from an anthropology perspective because we always hear about it from an anthropology perspective. So I decided I wanted to approach it from a more well-rounded way. So I went to the Native American Studies Department and I talked to Dr. Amanda Kopp Greetham about what she thought I should do because she's had a really, really good career in Native law and sovereignty law and policy. So I talked to her for about two hours about it and kind of brainstormed on what I could do. And we decided I just needed a double major and I just needed to do it. So I declared my second major and thinking more and more about it, I decided that if I really wanted to go forward with it, I'd have to go get my master's eventually. But yeah, I ended up majoring in both and absolutely loved it. It was a great time. It was very stressful. So if anyone wants to do a double major, just know it's going to be stressful uh, because I was taking about 21 hours a semester, but I made it out and we're here now. So hey, good, good on you for, for getting through that. I I think I did like 16 to 18 and I, it was, it was too much. And I, I, I had kind of a similar experience. I was like, Oh, I'll do anthropology and history and, you know, double major and this will be awesome. Yeah. I bailed. Super quick. And mostly it was it was like this. I had this assignment in history where I had to basically justify the reasons why the King Leopold, what good he did for the Congo. And I kind of like that's where I, that's that's where the that's where the end was for me and kind of building off that. Did you ever kind of have conflict between these two degrees? I mean, it's they're not like diametrically opposed to each other, but there are some areas of contention between anthropology and kind of Native American studies. Oh, yeah. I Yeah, it did happen. It didn't happen, actually, from the NAS department, Native American Studies Department. That was They were a huge family. I miss them so much. So if any of you guys are listening, I miss you. <laughs> but uh, we still stay in contact with each other. Like it was, It's a huge family, and it's just such a great dynamic, and I loved it. But unfortunately, it was actually from the anthropology side. I didn't have the best experience. It, anytime I kind of talked about what you do, because, you know, when you're in your class, like, this is my name, this is my major, this is what I'm doing. And I always felt like people didn't know what to do with me. They kind of looked at me like, you're doing what now? And I don't think people knew how to talk to me very well in the anthropology department because I think they were so scared of, like, either offending me or saying something wrong. And I was like, no, let's just have a conversation. Like, if you don't know, you don't know, like, let's talk about it. But I felt like people didn't want to interact with me or want to talk to me. It wasn't really hostile. It was just, that's just the way it was. I didn't really have a relationship with almost anyone in the anthropology department, aside from other indigenous people who were in the anthropology department. Like that was it. I look back on my time there fondly at the University of Oklahoma, but I definitely would say I felt way more at home in the Native American Studies Department 
and I just took classes in the anthropology department. I definitely didn't form a lot of connections over there. Well, one, thank you for for sharing that. I know we've had guests on previously who have kind of talked about some of these experiences between anthropology and like other fields. So it does happen. I mean, it's just kind of a legacy, I think, of some different, I mean, of of multiple disciplines, right? In terms of some of these long held perceptions of, of other, you know, fields. But you were able to through, I mean, you got to work at the Sam Noble Museum, right? Mm. Would you mind telling us how you're able to work at the Sam Noble Museum during undergrad? So I needed to do an internship for my Native American Studies degree uh, because in order to graduate, they want you to have some kind of experience in whatever you want to do. And a lot of people did their internships uh, with different tribes around the area or with the Bureau of Indian Affairs or wherever it fit for them. But since I was a kind of a weird case, I was kind of like the odd one out in a lot of situations because of what I wanted to do, they didn't really know what to do with me. So we called the collections manager for the archaeology collection and we just asked her, like, do you need help with anything? And she was like, yes, please send me whoever you have. We always need help. So I ended up being an intern with the Sam Noble Museum as an undergrad, and I actually interned with one of the NAGPRA grants that they were working on. I got to work up close and personal with a lot of the NAGPRA process through all the way from inventory to a consultation. So that was really, really cool. And then when my internship was up, um, as they always need help, they actually ended up offering me a position as a collections assistant. So I ended up working with the Sam Noble Museum until I graduated. Excellent. And do you have any like interesting stories from maybe not, you know, NAGPRA related, but just being a part of the Sam Noble Museum? I do. So the Sam Noble Museum, as it currently exists, is actually relatively recent. It's under 30 years old. I don't remember the exact date that they built the new museum. But the old one used to just kind of be a building that OU wasn't using and they just kind of put the museum in it. Well, when they got a grant to build the new museum, they were kind of going through everything and figuring out, oh, we had a lot of stuff in storage we didn't even know we had. Well, at the same time, they were renovating the football stadium. And it turns out we were using the football stadium as extra storage and we had totally forgotten because it had become a legacy collection because whoever had done that had moved on. So we didn't even know it was there until they started renovating the football stadium. And so as they did that, we were finding a lot of artifacts, a lot of different things, a lot of purchases. We didn't even know we had, we were like, okay, we got to move them. And this was before my time. So I'm telling the story as if I was there, but this story has been told to me many a time because many people are very proud of it, but they ended up finding an almost complete skull of a triceratops just in the bottom of the football stadium in a crate. That's crazy. (laughs) No one knew it was there. It was part of the legacy collection. But now if you go to the Sam Noble Museum and you go through um, the paleontology collection, you can actually see it. It's on display now. So if you see that, no, it was found in the bottom of a football stadium. That's that's hilarious, especially because Triceratops skulls are not particularly small. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea why or how that happened or maybe what the football team thought it was. I don't know, but it was there and now it's at the Sam Noble. So so just for clarification, like one, who is Sam Noble and two, like what is this museum a part of? Is this like the University of Oklahoma's like on campus? Yes. So the Sam Noble Museum of Natural History is one of two museums on OU. So OU has the Fred Jones Museum of Art, and they have the Sam Noble Museum of Natural History. Sam Noble was a very prominent figure in Oklahoma history, along with his brother Lloyd Noble. So a lot of stuff on the University of Oklahoma is either named Lloyd Noble or Sam Noble. And there's a lot of different things around Oklahoma named Noble. And so their family was heavily involved in almost everything from government, to oil, to politics, to all kinds of stuff. So they were just a really prominent family who gave a lot of money to the University of Oklahoma. You could say they worked for uh, a noble cause. <laughs> you could. You could say that. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave. I'll leave. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so there's, it's funny because there's I feel like there's that on every campus. There's someone who is named something out, out of that. Luckily, yours just happens to be very, very punny. <laughs> so uh, did you find anything else really interesting as part of that collection? I think, it, and I also think it's hilarious because the University of Tennessee, I think at Knoxville, their anthropology department and their collections were in the basement of 
a football stadium as well, <laughs> which is like, I just don't, I mean, it's like they build these big stadiums. And they're like, Oh gosh, we have an extra room here. Yeah. Just, you know, throw the archeology span in there. It's totally fine. It'll be, it'll be, it'll work out. It must be a common thing. Those big giant prehistoric reptiles from the Mesolithic era down there. That's how I imagine those things. Those, those conversations go just absolutely ridiculous. Would you consider that like working as with this NACRA project at the Sam Noble Museum kind of propelled you to pursue a museum studies degree at uh, the University of New Mexico? Absolutely. Because I got to see the process up close and personal and it wasn't just on paper and it wasn't just theoretical anymore. I actually got to see just what goes into it and what all the struggles are and all the complications and the setbacks and just really what the actual meat and potatoes of it is and not what it is on paper. And I saw that almost all the situations we see that are issues is not necessarily because of the museum themselves, at least not in the Sam Noble's case, it was outside influences. So whether they didn't have the room, they didn't have the manpower, they didn't have the ability to fund it. Like there was all these different things where the want to do the work is there. I was so grateful to be able to work with so many people who really did believe in NAGPRA and what it stands for and what we're trying to do with it. And it was just really great to be able to mentor under so many of them. But they were constantly set back by other issues. And it was just so frustrating to see that because NAGPRA could be so much better. Like it's, it's great as it is now. Like it was a huge advancement for the world as we went forward because we were kind of in America, we were kind of the first to really move forward with a legal standing for repatriations and for consultations like that. But since it just turned 30, we're really getting to see the pitfalls of it now because there's a lot of things that could not be accounted for when it was first written or situations that we had no idea was even going to happen or things that we didn't even think would be an issue, but they are. So being able to see that now, we're able to see where NAGPRA needs to go as a law. We're able to see where NAGPRA needs to go conceptually. We can see where NAGPRA needs to go in practice with museums. We can see where NAGPRA needs to go to service the tribes. Like there's so many ways it needs to change and be updated and be moved forward, but we're just stuck. And that definitely propelled me forward. And I really do feel like it's something I'm meant to be doing. It's just something that I feel really strongly about. No, absolutely. And what made you choose to pursue that at the University of New Mexico? So I knew I needed to go to grad school because most places will not hire you unless you have a master's degree. That's just the fact of it. But I also knew I needed to expand my knowledge and I needed to have more understanding of all these different facets of NAGPRA. I had the understanding of a grunt worker, essentially. I didn't have the understanding as a collections manager, as um, a TIPO or a SHIPO or private consultant or any of those. I didn't have any of that perspective whatsoever. So I knew I needed to get it. And I could have stayed at OU and probably done it, but OU's museum uh, studies program is actually online. It's not in-person and I really wanted an in-person program. So I started looking for in-person programs and that already limited me a little bit, but I specifically wanted a institution that had a strong native studies department or indigenous studies or American Indian studies, whatever they decided to call it. I wanted them to have a strong department because I knew I was going to need to be able to pull from those classes and be able to talk to those people that were in that department and be able to interact. Plus I really needed community. I don't think I could go anywhere and not have my, my indigenous family with me, but I really wanted that. But I also wanted an institution that was really strong in sovereignty law and policy, indigenous law and policy and antiquities law. So again, that limited me a lot. And then I wanted, again, the museum studies program. So I actually only had five universities that fit all of my qualifications of what I wanted. And on a whim, I emailed the director of the UNM program, kind of like how I just randomly messaged you, Carlton. So just email people. You never know where it's going to go. But I emailed the professor and we kind of talked for a while. And then my partner and I got married and we had our honeymoon in New Mexico. And on our honeymoon, I decided I wanted to tour UNM and interview with the department. So I did that and it was just a really good fit. So that's how I ended up at UNM. I, I, I love that so much that as an anthropologist and museum studies person, you spent part of your honeymoon <laughs> touring <laughs> school. I think that's absolutely fantastic. 
I mean, NAGPRA is important to me and my partner is very supportive of that. And he's on the NAGPRA train too. So it needed to get done. Well, yeah. And if, if the listeners are in New Mexico and have some time uh, visiting the museums uh, around the University of New Mexico, they're fantastic. Also, the Atomic Energy Museum is also top notch. Oh, no. totally recommend that. <laughs> We always have someone ask us about the nuclear yep. museum and they're like, oh, is the city nuclear? And I'm like, no, but no, but thank you. Thank you for your contribution. That's where David and Connor found out about my superpower when it comes to museums. Mm. Do go well, on. That, that, well, that, that thing used to have this or anything and there was a plane and there was a <laughs> big wing over there. And they, but in 1979, they changed that from this to that. And it was beautiful. <laughs> it was absolutely beautiful because he... <laughs> you know, he could have he could have given a whole tour of that of the planes and everything like that. And it it was fantastic. I loved touring it with Carlton. It was it was quite the superpower. Amazing. Okay, Carlton, next time you I come don't to wait too much about <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, we'll do. We'll do. Mm-hmm. I think on that note, we are going to end this segment. This is episode 42. We're, we're talking with Ash Boydston Schmidt about helium. No, 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 no. That's a, that's a noble gas. It was the Sam Noble <laughs> Museum. That's what it was talking about. Okay, oh, sorry. Oh. Oh, oh, I get confused. Oh. All right. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Carlton Gover here from Life and Runs Podcast. Now, before we begin segment three of episode 42, I'd like to drop this disclaimer that the views and perspectives of Ash during this segment are completely her own and not representative of the organization that we'll talk about. And so please keep that in mind as we move into the segment. Hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to segment three of episode 42 of a Life in Ruins podcast. That was a mouthful. And I got the episode number right. Finally. Cool. Wait, 42. Isn't that the number with Jim Carrey? That movie? Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah. Oh, it's... Oh, whoa. Okay. Just hitting all the numbers today. Okay. So in this segment, we usually... It's kind of a potpourri round, and we just kind of talk about any topic the guest wants to talk about. I don't know if we've done that every time. I'm just rambling now. Yeah. But what would you like to talk about? Well, first I'm going to correct myself. It was not a Triceratops. It was a Pentaceratops um, that was found at the... University of Oklahoma. So, so sorry, but I am not a paleontologist. That's okay. I think it's a pretentious ceratops if it wants to go by that name anyway. So <laughs> I'm mean, sure, but Boo. I'm, just right. yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> myself the rest of the time. No, no and it, it, that's even a larger skull than a triceratops, which is oh yeah, pretty nuts. It's a big boy. I got very uh, nostalgic and looked it up, and I was like, oh wait, I was wrong. But oh. yeah. And the running joke goes that we're not all. (laughs) Yeah, the running joke goes though that we're not all paleontologists, though, right? So there we go. We really are not paleontologists. All right, let's grab this uh, segment by the horns and keep going. All right, right, I seriously (laughs) will meet now. I will meet now. We're gonna get another email. (laughs) (laughs) So with a lot of my nag per work, I end up having to do a lot of public education, not formally, but kind of more informally, because when most people ask me what I do and I tell them I work with NAGPRA, they kind of stare at me like, what the heck is that? So a lot of my work does center around raising awareness with NAGPRA and a lot of the problems with it and a lot of how we should be going forward, because a lot of people don't necessarily realize why we have NAGPRA, why we even needed it in the first place and why we still continue to need it. I have a lot of people ask me like, oh, well, my grandpa dug this up. And I'm like, well, that wasn't very good. So a lot of it is trying to gently educate people while still trying to make sure my point is across. So I do a lot of work within public education, although it's not necessarily formally. Um, But within that, I also do a lot of education with cultural situations. I have been involved with scouting for about 19 years now. I was first involved with Girl Scouting and then secondly with Boy Scouting. And as we all know, this past year has raised a lot of questions and talks and situations surrounding not only Black Lives Matter, but Native Lives Matter and Hispanic Lives Matter and Indigenous Lives Matter and all these different lives that matter. And so speaking about this, the Boy Scouts decided to take an introspective look And I was invited to be on a task force with the Diversity and Inclusion Council for the Boy Scouts. So we are currently working on situations of 
cultural appropriation within the Boy Scouts. And we are working on how to move forward in an appropriate way and not continue to move forward with the inappropriate practices. So hopefully that will be happening soon. It will be like a five to 10 year plan. So nothing's going to happen immediately, but behind the scenes, there is stuff happening. So again, that kind of goes with a lot of the public education that I work with, because I really do feel like the more education that we put out there into the world and the more that we make an effort to speak to people and explain what's going on, it'll be easier for us to move forward in the future. I, I love that. I love the the public education piece of that, especially because in between our segments, you actually told us that there's only really three options for when you become an Eagle Scout of how to like, or how to become an Eagle Scout. There's only three <laughs> avenues for you to actually, that you can take. Do you mind explaining that for us? Yeah. So they're not serious avenues. These are more of a running joke, but uh, in scouting, you're either going to become a pyromaniac and you're going to want to set everything on fire. You are going to join an organization called the Order of the Arrow and do a lot of community service and do some not so great cultural appropriation. Uh, And then there is the next avenue where you earn a bunch of merit badges and you get really sucked into a lot of more theoretical stuff and you kind of become like the classic nerdy Boy Scout. But those Boy Scouts know so much. So don't go picking on them. They are the ones who probably know the most. And their and their popcorn is uh, top notch, even though it's encrusted with gold. Oh, absolutely. I'm an advocate for Boy Scout popcorn and Girl Scout cookies. I have an entire shelf of my pantry devoted to that. Absolutely. And this is kind of an ongoing, the term, the, what goes on with, with Boy Scouts in particular, the Order of the Arrow. I have a several friends, two of which that we've interviewed on this podcast, Devin Pettigrew and Mackenzie Corey, who are both Eagle Scouts who went through Order of the Arrow. And to hear them reflect now as graduate students in anthropology as to that process is just fascinating. Yeah, it's something. It's something that I think the kids don't really understand a lot of what's going on. And I mean, I say that and I sound like a very aged person um, because I would say kids these days are way more plugged in to what's going on than say when we were all kids, like we had no clue what was going on. But I would say a lot of the kids don't really understand the gravity of the situation and what's going on. They're just really excited to be in this super cool group because the way you get in the order of the arrow is if you exemplify the scout oath and law. And if you put yourself out there to be a leader by service, like a leader through service, um, servant leadership is the technical term. So a lot of these kids have no idea what's going on. It's on the adults to be like, hey, this is not okay. So it's really interesting when these kids who are in the OA grow up and then they learn and figure out and they're like horrified. So that's why um, there is a movement to change these things. And it's, it's long overdue. Like that needs to be acknowledged. It is long overdue, but it is slowly happening. We are working on it and we are working on how to phase things out without it being incredibly a financial burden on the kids themselves because the kids do pay to be in this organization and they pay for all their gear and they pay for their uniforms and they pay for all that. So we need to figure out a way to where it's not a financial hardship on the children and on their parents and their families. But we also need to figure out a way to make sure that this is happening. So it's going to be a slow phase out, but it's going to happen. Yeah. And I, and I guess just for clarification, this isn't just like slamming the Boy Scouts of America, but there's a particular, you know, Scouts was founded by an individual who idolized and glorified American Indian culture and try to teach a lot of these things to kids. And the Order of the Arrow is in a particular is particularly a ceremony that has a lot of cultural appropriation issues in, embedded into it. So this isn't like bashing scouts that this is just like, Hey, it's 2021, um, you know, current year. I don't even know if that even, you know, saying current year anyways. Yeah. But some of those things it's like, not, it's not okay in today's climate because we, we, we know better, but yeah, uh, absolutely. That's interesting that you're, you're involved in it. Yeah. Thank you. I adore the scouts. I was raised in scouting. I'm a fourth generation generation girl scout. It's, a huge part of my life. And I love the scouts, which is why I'm doing this work because if I didn't love the organization, I wouldn't try and change it. So this is not a bashing of any of the scouts. I do love them very dearly, but because I love them dearly is why I'm trying to do this work. And with the phase out, it's going to be very interesting on how we go about it. But it was, it's really interesting because Boy Scouts was founded um, overseas in England by Lord Baden-Powell. And then it was brought back over to America by some other gentlemen. And the two gentlemen that ended up 
formulating the Order of the Arrow, they did it at a summer camp because they wanted it to be an honor system to recognize the scouts that were going above and beyond. Because children do need to rec- be recognized when they're going above and beyond. And it actually originally did not start out with a lot of the cultural appropriation. That actually came later. So it started out as an honor society. And then a couple of years later, I say a couple, it may have been five, about five years later, that's when the more cultural appropriation started coming in. And a lot of the history surrounding it is, as we know, a lot of even in anthropology, we hear about how everyone thought indigenous people were dying out and they wanted to preserve that way of life and those thoughts and concepts and things like that. And that's kind of the same thought process that was lended into the order of the arrow. And then it just kept going and going and going and going and nothing really stopped it. Um, They did change their logo. I think in the, it was either late eighties or early nineties from the head of a plains warrior wearing a war bonnet and they changed it to an arrow and they stopped wearing face paint. (laughs) So that stopped, but nothing else stopped. There was a lot of other things that were happening. And so going forward, we're trying to get back to the original ideals, recognizing kids for their exemplary service and how they serve the Boy Scouts, because that's what it needs to be about. And you don't need cultural appropriation to do that. You don't need it to be a service organization, to serve your community, to serve Scouts. So slowly working on it, but getting there, um, I'm very excited to see where it goes, especially because I have a lot of very dear friends of mine who were in the OA, who have spoken to me a lot about it. And I've been bouncing ideas off of them. I'm working with National OA. So it's not like I'm just doing this completely on my own. Like there's a lot of input from a lot of people to make sure that this is done right. So it doesn't have to be done again in the future. Well, and, you know, kind of kind of building off that, you know, if this thing was started in, you know, 1910. So, you know, you would hope that they would have done these kind of updates cultural updates as they went through these things and eventually you know in you know the 2000s the 90s when you know nagra's coming out and we're trying to kind of these wider movements to be more cognizant of how we are taking or um, working with other cultures so you think you, you would hope that you know through that time that they would have this kind of update but it just doesn't seem like it it ever happened yeah, there was a, a small effort at one point, again, with the logo change and the no more use of face paint. And there is something called the AIA. I believe it stands for the American Indian Activities Council. So the AIA Council within the Boy Scouts. And it's supposed to help with situations of cultural appropriation by being um, a liaison or being able to consult with local tribes on what's appropriate. But because there's not many guidelines on that and there's not a lot of direction on how to do that, it just kind of ends up being almost like a tool to say, well, but we're trying, even though in reality it's not always happening. And there are some AIA councils that are trying. I will give them that. There are a handful that are trying, Um, but a handful is not enough, not for a national organization. So... I think moving forward, it's just better to not, if you're not going to do something right and you're not going to do something respectfully, you need to not do that. So there has been a small effort, but yeah, as you said, it hasn't been big enough and it was not done timely. Uh, Because if we think about it, when the Order of the Arrow was founded, Native peoples were not even citizens of this country because the American Indian Citizenship Act had not gone through yet. And the Religious Freedoms Act did not go through until the 70s. And NAGPRA didn't go through to the 90s. The American Indian Arts and Crafts did not go through till the 90s. Like all of these laws that protect indigenous people's rights were not even in place when this was happening. And so I think that context is so important when looking at situations with the OA, because we had kids and adults playing Indian when native peoples were being persecuted and jailed and sometimes even killed over this. So... That context is incredibly important when looking at these situations. I would hope that, I mean, I've just kind of seen a pattern of kids as of late being fairly progressive, you know, like just Mm -hmm. they seem to see things in a more holistic light. So it would just take enough kids to see it in the, you know, this isn't the nicest thing to do or the most respectful thing to do. And hopefully in, you know, the next generation of Boy Scouts that comes up might see it as you know, and poor taste to do. Hopefully it would go away soon, but I don't know. Just took a while for the football team to change their name too. So 
Yeah. And I mean, we have to look at that. The motivating factor there was money. And so even though the Boy Scouts is standing for creating children of service and good morals, however you want to define good morals, whether that's burning something down or being service to the community, but it's meant to fill the gaps that children are missing in some way, shape or form. So you could have a wonderful family um, and not need the more like parental figure in your life, but you still need to go camping. You still need to like experience a lot of this stuff. So Boy Scouts as its whole is there to lead forward with its law and oath. And we are seeing a lot of these younger generations of scouts. They are actually in agreement with this. They are not opposed to the changes we are making. They've actually made some suggestions themselves because I thought that the task force I'm on, we were going to have to pull some punches and the kids are actually cheering us on. They're like, no, go further. And we're like, Oh, great. Awesome. It's actually some of the older guys that have been in for, their entire lives and they're hitting their older years that are actually fighting back against it. So it's actually the kids that are really some of our biggest cheerleaders. They're really pushing for it. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And that, you know, my experience, cause I, I was in there for a little bit is just, you know, the outdoors and, you know, meeting new people. And that's what I really remember about it. And I think that's what it, like you mentioned, like that's what it does so fantastically, but there's always room for change. There's always room for things to be better. You know, I I don't want to, I don't want to see them go away. I just want them to help better educate the youth. Oh, absolutely. And they're doing, there's a lot of work being done within the diversity and inclusion council that I'm not a part of. I am only on this specific task force. There's also task force working on how to make it more accessible to children from different minority groups from children from LGBTQ plus groups from children who don't fit within the gender norms that they are assigned. There are people working on how to make it more accessible for people with disabilities. Like they are trying to make boy scouts, well, scouts now as a whole more inclusive for everyone, because that's just what we need to do. It now is no longer boys. It is boy scouts at like the national level. Cause that's what the legal name is, but it is scouting. Now we do have, young women joining scouts and we do have a more inclusive policy of LGBTQ plus children and LGBTQ plus adults that are also within the program. And so we are slowly seeing these changes to become more inclusive. Now it's not going to happen overnight. And what happens at the national level is going to have to trickle down um, slowly to these smaller councils, but we are making progress and we are going forward to make sure that scouting is for everyone. That is interesting. It's kind of relevant to this, but I just remember in high school, one of my friends, I don't know if it was because he was agnostic or atheist, I don't remember exactly what he identified as, but he wasn't allowed to get his Eagle Scout because of that, because he had told his scout leader that. So they went to court and they like took it, I think like to like DC or something like that. And like he was able to get his uh, Eagle Scout because of that. It's just, it's in, like the Boy Scouts seems to be making like a lot of, or the Scouts, I guess, making a lot of changes as of late. I, I was not a boy scout, so I have no idea of anything <laughs> that goes on, but it's yeah. cool to see that they're, they're changing. Yeah. It's, it is slowly getting there. I mean, we got a lot of ways to go, but we're getting there. And it is unfortunate that that did happen to a lot of kids who were not your fit in the boy scout box of what was Christian. Um, and that did happen a lot because it was founded as a Christian organization. Um, but we are seeing it be more open to different religions or the absence of religion, if that is what that person so chooses. There is some work being done in that section as well. Uh, it There was a change. I do actually remember when that happened. So I, I'm incredibly fascinated that you knew the person. But I do oh, remember. Yeah. yeah, I do remember when I was, I think, in middle school that that kind of started to shift. And I mean, attitudes are going to be different depending on where you are with the Boy Scouts. Um, Another big factor with that was the um, Latter-day Saints church ended up withdrawing from the Boy Scouts and creating their own program because there were differences in what they wanted as opposed to what the Boy Scouts were going forward with. And so I think with the Latter-day Saints pulling out of Boy Scouts, um, Boy Scouts ended up shifting a little bit because there wasn't that influence there. Not saying there's anything wrong with that influence, but that influence did have ramifications that trickled down just as a lot of these changes are going to have ramifications because we're going to see if they work or not work again, kind of like NAGPRA back in the nineties, we didn't know what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And now we're seeing that. And so it's 
all a process that just needs to constantly be reevaluated to make sure that we really are serving the people we need to be serving. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work on that and for helping to be a part of that change. Um, and, and, and thank you so much for being on this podcast with us. Um, we're a little predictable, so you might hear this, you might see this coming, but because this, this podcast is called a life in ruins, we always got to ask this question at the end. So if you were like given the chance to do it, do it all over again, you know, life from step one, would you still choose to live a life in ruins? Absolutely. This is what I'm meant to be doing. Awesome. Well, excellent. And with that, we just interviewed Ash Boydston Schmidt, a master's student at the University of New Mexico. And we will be back with another another one next week. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So this comes from the, the, the dad jokes from my father. So thank you, Dean, for all you do. So I, I found a, a wooden shoe in my toilet today. Turns out it was clogged. Wow. Oh. Thank you, Dean. All right. And with I got that, one. We are, <laughs> all right. Yes, dude. Oh. A guy walked into a bar. It was 2019. Oh. Ow. Ooh. I know. That one's more sad. That anyway, one hurts. I saw it on Instagram today and I was like, ugh. <laughs> and with that, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.